Good morning. Welcome to the annual New York Cotton Market Roundtable. Uh, this is our 17th time to bring you uh, the roundtable from New York. Uh, we are coming to you from the New York Stock Exchange. Thanks to ICE Futures for hosting us. Uh, we want to acknowledge Tim Berry and Tribune Bland, uh, who's president of ICE Futures U.S. Also, we want to recognize our sponsors, Bayer, uh, for always being uh, a sponsor of ours throughout the years. We thank them and want to recognize Brent Crossland for all he's done for us. The format for today will be we will, uh, we will have our cotton panel discuss crop conditions in the U.S., uh, then we'll have our special guest, Joe Nicosia, talk about uh, his outlook for cotton prices, and then we'll have a question and answer period. Uh, the, uh, in looking at uh, our speakers today, Dr. O.A. Cleveland, Professor Emeritus, Mississippi State University, uh, is a very well-known cotton marketing expert. O.A. has been with us since the very first, our very first start for the Ag Market Network. He'll cover the Southeast and the Mid-South and the Delta. Uh, then H.W. Uh, Kip Butts is a senior cotton analyst and director of energy services with Informa Economics. Uh, Kip started with us here in the last few years. Uh, he will cover uh, outside influences in the cotton market. Gerald Nieper is president of Calcot, and uh, his, in his seventh year, I believe, as president of the 83-year-old or 84-year-old co-op. He has been with us since our first year of the Cotton Market Roundtable. Gerald will cover California and the Southwest, Dr. John Robinson's professor and extension economist, cotton marketing, Texas A&M University. He will discuss Texas. Let's go ahead and get started. We will introduce our guest speaker, Joe, after we're through with our uh, crop conditions. Away, thanks for starting us off. Well, thank you very much, Pat, and thank you all. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you again, and I always appreciate the opportunity that ICE gives us to come up and uh, visit with about with the cotton market and talk about cotton prices. It's uh, I'm going to talk about the Southeast Pat, as you said, and the Mid South. Uh, the events of the year. We're about halfway into the growing season, roughly. Uh, so another half to go. We've not had any formal uh, objective estimates of crop sizes. Everything's been in a sense uh, subjective, uh, more so than just through the windshield. But we we have some. We feel like at the, for this time of year we have some solid estimates, but the thing that we have to remember at this time of year is that so much can change. In essence, tomorrow is much more important than today as we start to look at crop size. But looking, focusing first on the southeast, I think we all know that Georgia is the lead state down there, and USDA acreage, about 1.3 million acres of the 2.5 roughly, that are in, in, planted in the entire southeast. But uh, we're looking at the southeast as producing a crop today of about 4.7 million bales. Uh, we can call it 4.5 to 4.7 right in that area. Certainly some things can change and will change to modify that crop most likely. But looking at, at that 4.7 million bales the, off of out of Georgia, where we would anticipate the largest production, a 933-pound yield would give us something about like 2.5 to 2.6 million bales out of Georgia. And over the past several years with problems and opportunities, Alabama has become the second largest uh, state with respect to production and plantings. Uh, and they're looking at nearly a million bales this coming season off of a yield of about 900, 900 plus a little bit, uh, much closer to about 822,000 bales, but close to a million, and that's a big step for Alabama, I would suggest. Uh, the, the crop in the southeast, just very much like the mid-south, uh, it was a little cool early, it was a little wet early, and uh, somewhat off to a slow start. But at the same time, we've caught up with the, with the temps have caught up, the degree days have tended to catch up, and we've got a very good flowering season going on now. So our crop uh, should be a, a very solid crop. And again, about 4.7 million bales out of the southeast. Much the same in the south, in the mid-south, a much smaller acreage. Uh, not quite a million bales less, but the roughly 1.8 million bales, excuse me, 1.8 million acres in the Mid-South. The lead state, uh, again, has come back to Mississippi. Mississippi had a rather large increase in acreage this year, but USDA is carrying that at 539,000 uh, acres and uh, on a yield of roughly 1,160 pounds. So about 1.3 million bales coming out of Mississippi making the, the Mid-South crop itself roughly 4 million bales. 
uh, as with the, as I say, 1.3 coming out of Mississippi. Arkansas is the second largest state there, and Arkansas is looking right at a million bales itself. Uh, Tennessee is the only state in the Mid-South that right now that we're not projecting a 1,000-pound-plus a, 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 a yield, but Tennessee itself is coming in at about 982 pounds. Again, like the, as I said, with the Southeast, a little bit of a slow start, wet start, cool start, but it's caught up. Uh, I can remember 1991, much of the Mid-South on July the 4th, just a, a week removed or two weeks removed from right now, much of that crop was almost up to your to your calf is only that that was the size of it had it the weeds were as high as it was and to that date that was a record yield so consequently what the point being is that we have plenty of time to have a have, 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 have a barn burst of crop out of the mid-south but right now looking at about four million bales maybe on the high side of the mid-south and the uh, southeast just f functioning right there at about uh, uh, at, at about uh, uh, 8.6 million bales, maybe, uh, excuse me, seven, excuse me, 8.6 million bales, 8.5 million bales, maybe down as low as 8.4, but uh, big crop coming out of the southeast, and we'll talk about it more later on with supply-demand numbers. Thank you very much. Okay, let's go uh, next to uh, Dr. John Robinson. Okay, I'm going to focus on Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, and in the southwestern region in general, the 2017 season started off somewhat optimistically with uh, expectations of decent prices, certainly increased cotton plantings, and good widespread soil moisture conditions over much of the area during the, during the springtime, and that led to expectations of above average yield and below average abandonment, which actually have persisted all the way through the uh, July WASD. Obviously, they're going to change with updated information. Um, but the situation was was a little bit more complicated than that in that we had drying patterns that developed during the West Texas planting times of April and May, and that led to some non-germination and failure of dryland fields, and then that was prior to the onset of several large rain events, which were accompanied by hail. So all of that has led to a somewhat patchy overlay of beneficial effects from moisture on the one hand and damaging effects from heat, dryness, flooding, wind damage, and hail. Uh, the ultimate effect of all that uh, on uh, aggregate abandonment and production is still unknown, but um, I'm going to try to relay some uh, regional, regional anecdotal uh, summaries to you. First of all, beginning in Kansas, uh, that state, first of all, saw a notable increase in planted acreage. They did see some of the uh, losses due to hail and, and um, wind damage conditions, but in general, the crop that's there is characterized as being in pretty good shape. Uh, they've received a few times rains, and the last one being just this last Sunday, Jul July the 16th. They got uh, over a half an inch. Um, but they're at that stage where uh, the, the plant is, uh, the crop is beginning to bloom, and so they need timely rains going forward. And whether or not they get those will obviously determine what the yield potential is. But I could judge they could, they could have between 80,000 and 100,000 bales, depending on how it plays out, which is absolutely astounding to me. Uh, but that's the way it is. Uh, Oklahoma is like Kansas is uh, I would describe as sort of an expanding industry. Acreage has been going up. New growers have been coming in and planting cotton, and they've been adopting new technologies that are uh, uh, beneficial to them, particularly protecting uh, what in the past has been historical damage from uh, uh, wheat herbicides, 2,4-D, and that sort of thing. They've adopted the new herbicides that are tolerant in cotton to those, or the new varieties that are tolerant to those herbicides which may be, all of that may be contributing to uh, an uptrend in yields in Oklahoma. Um, the people there think that there's actually probably a little more acreage planted than what uh, NAS reported on June the 30th, so there may be, there may be uh, 500,000 acres there, about a fifth of which is irrigated. Uh, that irrigated crop, they replaced some of those acres, four or 5,000 that were lost to flood and wind damage, but in general, it looks pretty good. The dryland is described, again, as most places I'm gonna talk about, being at a critical stage uh, where um, uh, fruiting is going on and, and, and peak water demand is set in, and so they need to get uh, a, a, some solid rains uh, in timely fashion over the next couple months, and that'll determine the variation in their production. But again, I, I, I could see on the low side 600,000 bales, and on the high side something exceeding 700,000 if, if they were to get timely rains going forward. Texas, of course, is always a bit of a... Of, um, well, it's a variable deal just because of the, the, the time and the season and the differences in the crops that are planted. So going from south to north, uh, 
There are reportedly good crops in the Rio Grande Valley and the coastal bend. The valley is being harvested. The coastal bend is basically being defoliated, moving up the upper coast. It's uh, blooming out the top. It'll probably be defoliated in August. Moving up into the Blacklands and Brazos Bottoms, the dryland cotton is reportedly cutting out while the irrigated could benefit from either one more timely rain or one more irrigation. So there's some, some variation in potential production there. All of those regions I just mentioned have been experiencing above average bollworm infestations, which is occurring even on fields that have the uh, BT resistant traits, some of the newer ones. And so they're, they're uh, having to be oversprayed with insecticides. I, I can't size up what the aggregate effect of that might be on production, but certainly it's going to be raising some costs to the growers. Um, West Central Texas and the lower rolling plains is uh, either ranging from full squaring to mid bloom, which means it's in its peak water demand period. Um, there's some reportedly variable looking crops in some of those regions, somewhat of a mixed bag, but you'll also hear anecdotal stories of very good looking crops. And interestingly, the further west you go in, uh, in that lower rolling plains region, it's reportedly looking pretty good. The northern rolling plains is somewhat the same, somewhat of a mixed bag. Some of the latest planted, youngest cotton in the state is there. Some of it planted in late June, so it's not even really in squaring. Um, it's got a long way to go. And lastly, the high plains was the region that took the brunt of the storm damage in June and early July. The remaining croppers reported to be a little bit late, somewhat of a mixed bag. But again, you'll hear anecdotal stories of, of good looking cotton, particularly the irrigated. It's also in the squaring to early bloom stage. So that means basically it's in a four week window starting you know, now from the third week of, of July through about the third week of August is all the fruit that's gonna be set that could possibly be carried forward to harvest is gonna be set during this critical time. And so again, the variation in production is gonna depend on them getting some timely rains here in the next few weeks. Um, whether or not uh, those regions get that remains to be seen. So to characterize the production in Texas, I would, I've taken a broader uh, swath of historical observations of yield and abandonment between going back to about 07 through 16, throwing out the extremes and uh, characterizing uh, regional abandonments and yield. And when you do that, one thing that jumps out at me is that uh, the, the expected value of abandonment in the Southern High Plains and the Northern High Plains is still pretty high. It's 22% in the Panhandle and 29% in the South Plains. That always includes some failure to germination, wind damage, flood losses, and some hail. I'm bumping those numbers up a bit to account for the notable uh, uh, severe hail damage that uh, was reported this year. And when I do that, I'm coming up with an with an expected production value in Texas of around 6.7 million bales, which I think, I think we'll get that or better depending on, depending on how it shakes out. So between 6.7 7, between million for Texas, maybe 700,000 for Oklahoma, 90,000 for Kansas, I'm looking at a regional production number averaging around 7.5. Tab that a little bit. Okay, let's go next to Gerald Nieper. He'll cover California and the Southwest. Well, for anybody who follow, follows the weather, you know that California had some uh, fantastic winter weather this year. All the, the snowpack in the mountains uh, just uh, was unbelievable. Mammoth, 700 inches, uh, if you're a skier at all. Um, just They're still skiing, by the way, in, in California and, and in Nevada at, the, uh, at, at some of the higher elevations. But this has caused some, some problems, obviously. Uh, as the heat has come on this, this, uh, this summer, you've had a lot of snow melt, a lot of uh, water coming down into the valley. So growers haven't had a problem getting their hands on water this year. Um, but all this moisture also causes problems. Uh, the moisture in the, in the foothills, you green up the foothills, and then when it dries out, then where do, the, where do these insects go? So we've had a lot of ligus problems in, in California this year. Um, the winter weather caused this crop to be late. Uh, last Monday, USDA was reporting that 60% uh, of the crop was squaring versus 85% last year, and uh, a five-year average of 91%. Only 10% of the crop is setting bowls versus a five-year average of, of 51%. Certainly the crop is late. The excess heat, excessive heat that we've had here lately um, is certainly helping the crop to catch up. Um, but uh, we're still gonna need a long, uh, pleasant fall to, to, to make a good crop. 
but the insect pressures between the ligus and now we're starting to see some aphids in, in the San Joaquin Valley, that's going to cause some, some yield losses. So I would not expect to, to see a record yield this, this year in California. Overall in California, I'm looking for a crop of around 900, just over 900,000 uh, bales, about 640 to 650,000 bales of, of Pima, and around 270, 280, something like that in, uh, for, a, for an upland crop. Moving over to Arizona, uh, they had some, some weather challenges also this winter, so uh, uh, that crop got in a little bit late as well. But uh, overall, the, the crop in Arizona is doing uh, uh, probably better than, certainly better than, than California. You had a, an early crop in Arizona that uh, uh, fortunately was, was able to make it through this recent heat spell in, in, uh, in flying colors. You had some of the crop that was planted after a grain crop uh, that uh, was too young to really have a big, uh, suffer any damages from the, uh, from the extreme heat. Part of the, 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 the crop that was planted in between the early crop and the late crop, well, there was some level one and, and level two heat stress out there, but uh, generally speaking, uh, it's, it's, the crop is loaded up well and uh, didn't suffer, at least right as of today, hasn't suffered too much from, from the excess heat. Um, in Arizona, the, uh, the total crop would be estimated at uh, somewhere just over 500,000 bales of upland. I'm, I'm carrying a 500, about 520,000 bales of upland and about 30,000 bales of, of Pima. Uh, New, the New Mexico crop is uh, certainly progressing well over there and uh, uh, they've had some challenges, but uh, certainly not, not the same sort of challenges that they've had in, in uh, California and Arizona but that crop is estimated at just over 100,000 bales of, of upland and uh, about 8,000 to 9,000 bales of, of Pima. The Texas Pima crop, uh, I'm estimating at around 30,000 bales. So all in all, around 700,000 bales of Pima in, in the far west and uh, around 900,000 bales of, uh, of upland between Arizona, California, and New Mexico. Pat, that would uh, conclude my remarks. Okay, We're, we'll go next to Kip Butts. He is gonna talk about outside influences in the cotton market. Thank you, Pat. Uh, when you talk about outside influences, we're gonna be talking about the general uh, global economic activity uh, and consumer behaviors. Those are two big driving forces. Right now we see the uh, general economic outlook uh, continues to be favorable, but somewhat fragile. Um, at this point, at least we don't see a global or U.S. Uh, recession imminent, although we can't discount that totally out of hand. Uh, many of the countries that are working are, uh, that are, have economic growth are subpar, uh, are not performing uh, the way they wanted to, and central bank issues continue to be problematic uh, as they kind of on a tightrope here to normalize rates, contract their balance sheets, and do this in a slow growth environment where they can try to achieve it without creating a recession on their own. This is something, a feat that might be better performed by David Copperfield than uh, Janet Yellen or Mario Draghi. Several countries are precariously dangerous as far as their debt uh, to GDP ratios. Japan is the poster child for that. However, seven of 12 European uh, EU countries are actually in that category of having excessive debt to, uh, to GDP ratios. And so that's certainly got to be looked at. Uh, government involvement and activities uh, impact cotton and cotton consumers. India this year did, went through a demonetization program which changed their, uh, their domestic uh, cotton flows, the way that cotton moved. Also, it changed their trade patterns. They had a little bit more uh, imports than they would ordinarily have. The U.S. certainly benefited from that, and their exports were modified as well. They just passed their uh, goods and services tax which may or may not, some of that's still being uh, analyzed. Uh, the initial thought that it might hurt cotton mill use, uh, having looked at it a little bit more, there may not be much of a change at all, but this is something we really need to monitor as far as uh, uh, with India being the second largest consumer of, mill consumer of cotton in the world. Uh, U.S. consumer is suffering from increased bubbles, increased healthcare costs, um, increased rents, and to a lesser degree for the consumers, student debt has increased as well. Anytime you're in a scenario where your disposable income gets in a bubble environment, it does in fact change your spending pattern, and apparel, I think, uh, did, has received uh, kind of a problem on that. 
the retail sales support that argument to a degree. Um, before the Great Recession, the increases in uh, apparel and clothing uh, averaged about 5.3 annual increase. That's from 2002 to 2006. Uh, then the period from 2010 to 14 was 4.3%, which is still, or excuse me, 4%, which is still very respectable. However, last year is up 0.5% annually. Looks like it's going to be up about 0.9% this year on an annual basis. Um, and that is in a scenario, too, where man-made fibers are taking a larger percentage of the, uh, of the market itself. E-commerce is starting to take off a little bit more. You've probably read that Amazon is beginning to, uh, wants to go into the apparel business. That may give cotton and apparel a little boost here. Uh, and that would be uh, very much needed for the industry because of these uh, slow sales. Another factor is crude oil prices. Uh, it, any conversation regarding inflation, world growth, uh, and geopolitical uh, stability or instability, oftentimes that uh, centers around crude oil. Feedstock for polyester is also um, a residual of crude oil manufacturing and, um, and fuel manufacturing. So in fact, because crude oil prices are expected because of the fracking industry to be relatively low or at least in a, a range at, uh, at the low end of, of the recent prices, we expect polyester prices to remain relatively tame over a period and uh, from the medium to the long term and in fact create uh, the same kind of competition they've had for a while. <clears throat> Excuse me. Although not associated uh, directly with cotton, spec activity in the cotton futures market is important for price action. High frequency traders and algorithmic traders have taken a bigger part of our market. And in fact, the thoughts of supply demand uh, uh, work, which we all do, and it's very important, short term, the kind of money movements and uh, these algorithmic traders can really make a big difference, particularly in the short term. We talked earlier about the beginning, the central banks and their activities creating uh, impact in the market. That's, we're going to close with that as well. And as much as the Forex market can be very volatile, depending on how the central bank acts and behaves with their uh, methods of, of normalizing rates. So, Pat, uh, those are a few things I wanted to talk about on that. I'll be happy to discuss this in detail if we want to during the panel discussion. All right. Our special guest today is Joe Nicosia. Uh, he is Executive Vice President of Louis Dreyfus Commodities, LLC. He serves as Senior Head of Cotton at Louis Dreyfus uh, Company, BV. He has been Vice President of LDC Holdings since 2010. He served as Senior Platform Head of Cotton and Senior Head of Tropicals Merchant of Louis Dreyfus BV. I think most people would agree that uh, Joe Nicosia is the foremost cotton expert in the world. He's joined us uh, in the past on several occasions as our special guest speaker. Uh, thanks for being with us, Joe, and sharing us your, with us your market outlook. Okay. Thanks, Pat. It's always, uh, it's always enjoyable to be here in New York and uh, always love being able to meet up with our panel. It's, uh, as always, it's always uh, interesting to be with OA here. I wasn't sure if we were going to get the Hawaiian shirt again or not, so I was prepared, but uh, can't wait for next year. So uh, first of all, let's start uh, looking back a little bit. Uh, during last year's roundtable when we were here, the United, uh, United States Department of Agriculture were projecting the ending stocks to be 91.3 million bales. Uh, today, as we sit here, the ending stocks are projected at 90.3. While the difference in the ending stocks is very small, the, the expected and actual scenarios and how that unfolded are considerably different. A year ago, the USDA expected world production to be at 102.6. Today, it's estimated at 106.5. This 4 million bale higher production was largely offset by 2.2 million bales of increase in consumption around the world to 13.8. The other factor that helped draw down world stocks this year was a reduction of 3.1 million bales of beginning stocks. The point here isn't to criticize the USDA's work, but to rather remind us that all the inherent variability that exists in trying to look at supply and demand projections so early in the season. The composition of the 2016-17 ending stocks also changed considerably compared to last year. USDA had estimated the China's ending stocks were going to be 51.7 million bales at the end of this year, but now it's 48.4. In the United States, despite a 1.4 million bale increase in production, 
Our ending stocks are actually going down 1.4 million bales versus estimates to 3.2. The difference due to the export projections and it increased from 11.5 to 14.5 or 3 million bale increase. Last year, many of us up here were talking about and worrying about whether we were making enough sales to justify the USDA export estimate of 11.5. 11.5 million bale estimate would have been the highest export we had had in three years and seemed optimistic at the time. After all, it was a bold forecast for the U.S. export share to increase from 26% to 33.5% in just one year. The current estimate that we have of 14.5 would be the second largest export number the United States has ever achieved, only behind the 17.7 million in 2005. It also represented just under 40% of world exports. Not only did the better than expected world consumption, which increased 2.2 million bales, boost U.S. export prospects, but so did other factors around the world. Uh, Kip just mentioned one of the most important one that we had was a reduction in the Indian crop and the delay in its crop arrival brought on by the demonetization plan inside of India, which made their cotton less competitive and slower to come to market. This along with a smaller Brazilian crop, which reduced their exports by 1.5 million bales, pretty much entirely explains the increase in the U.S. export business. Today, I think just the opposite is happening to last year. Some of us are wondering if the USDA export estimate of 13.5 million bales for 2017-18 is too low, considering that we have already 5 million statistical bales sold for next marketing year, and the potential of 900 to 1.2 million bales statistically to move over from carryover sales from this year. The new marketing year will begin with commitments of roughly 44% of USDA's current estimate. This compares to a range of 24 to 46 over the previous five years. Assuming we have carryover sales next year, which is normal of about 7%, that means the U.S. only needs to sell 160,000 bales per week for the next 55 weeks to reach its estimate of 13.5 million bales. The export share at that time would be down to about 369 down from the 39.7 of this year, but still substantially higher than 2015's 26%. Last year, producers in the Northern Hemisphere responded to prices that they had been experiencing at 60 to 65 cent range and harvested an area that had declined by 3% to 72.6 million acres. That was the lowest level since the 72.5 in 1986. For 2017 and 18, however, USDA is projecting that world cotton harvested area is going to rebound sharply by over 10.3% to over 80 million acres. As producers responded to futures prices that were in the 72 to 75 cent range. Even in China, where their area has been cut by more than half since 2007, area is increasing by 5.2% to 7.5 million acres. The large acreage increases can be seen mainly in three countries. India going up 3.7 million acres, United States up almost 2 million, and Pakistan up almost a million acres. Those account for almost 90% of the increases. USDA projects that the world production is going to increase by 8.8 .8 million bales to 115.4 this year. Like last year, there are uncertainties about U.S. production specifically for Texas, which I'll discuss later. A year ago, there were concerns that the Indian monsoon was late. This year, the monsoon has generally been good, despite a few areas that still need some additional rainfall. Some areas in Gujarat and Maharashtra have received heavy rain lately, and you've seen some reports of possible flooding or damage. However, these heavy rains have been much more beneficial than they have been detrimental, and we expect a bumper crop in India this year, the world's largest producer. Additional. China's Xinjiang province is experiencing excellent growing conditions, and after a shaky start, the crop in the eastern provinces is doing well uh, also. Pakistan appears to have successfully managed its relatively minor pink bollworm and white fly infestations so far this year. Most of that crop is dependent upon um, canal water for irrigation, and supplies have been adequate to allow that crop to get off to one of the best starts it's had in many years. On the usage side, USDA sees a healthy increase in consumption of 3.3 million bales, or almost 3% to 117 for the upcoming year. This compares to a compounded annual growth rate of just under 1% that we've been able to experience in the last five years. 
The increase comes in mainly five countries, India, China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and Turkey, which account for almost 3 million bales of this increase. The increase of 3.3 million bales on world consumption seems reasonable, but slightly optimistic to us, even with the IMF projections for world GDP growth to be increased by 3.5 this year and 3.6 for next year. Cheap polyester prices relative to cotton remain a drag on world cotton consumption and will do so for the foreseeable future, particularly so in China. ICAC projects that the cotton share of world fiber demand continues on a downward path and the cotton share is now 25.7% of fiber use for 2017, marking the ninth consecutive decrease in share. The point is, is that the gains in cotton consumption going forward are gonna to have to be driven by increases in population and total fiber use, not by gains in cotton share. The pressure from polyester can, can clearly be seen in the data on US imports and textile apparel. In 2010 and 11 season, cotton accounted for 55% of all textile and apparel imports into the United States. From August and May of this season, cotton share of all textile apparel is down to now 47%. The cotton share of textile and apparel imports from China is even more startling as it is only 20%. This should not be surprising considering that the polyester production inside of China has more than doubled in the past 10 years from just over 24 million metric tons in 2008 to 52.4 million tons in this coming year. The fact that the landed price for polyester in China is approximately half the price of cotton doesn't help the cotton share at all. One of the most interesting aspects for the 2017-18 balance sheet is the shift in stocks between China and the rest of the world. While China's ending stocks are expected to drop by 9 million bales, the rest of the world's ending stocks are projected to increase by 7.5 million. This is the single most important change to the world situation in 2017 and 18. If realized, this marks the first time since 2011 that China's ending stocks will be lower than that of the rest of the world. The reason that this is so important is that the total stocks are projected to increase in every major exporting country. We will not see or feel these excess supplies until November or December of this year and then all the way through to September. It is this additional supply the largest in 10 years outside of China that will eventually cause a decline in the U.S. export share. Currently, we have a tight stock situation, which is allowing the United States to grab the lion's share of forward business, as the U.S. is recognized as a reliable trading partner with an abundant new crop available to be sold. I expect the U.S. to continue to capture a high share of the export business going forward for new crop until India and other exporters enter the market and begin to undercut United States prices. Another important implication of the large increase in stocks outside of China is that the more bales that the Chinese government had carried, the more the rest of the world was insulated from the cost of carry. As Chinese stocks decline and the rest of the world's stocks increase, the burden of carrying stocks switches. So where and how will the additional 7.5 million bales of stock in the rest of the world be carried? Outside of China, there are basically five ways that stocks can be held or carried. One is the United States CCC loan. Two is India's minimum support price program. Three would be by textile mills. Four would be by the growers and farmers. And five by the trade. Where stocks are carried also depends on the price level. Farmers, whether in the United States or elsewhere, do not hold stocks for long periods of time. Textile mills generally do not increase their inventories of raw cotton prices unless they're very low, and that probably translates to future prices down in the 50s. Whether or not <clears throat> cotton moves into the Indian MSP program is a complex process. The corresponding futures price level at which cotton is likely to be procured by the government of India depends not only on the MSP rate, but also on such factors as the price of cottonseed, the ginning outturn percentage, ginning cost, and the exchange rate between the Indian rupee and the dollar. In the end, government procurement of seed cotton is not likely to occur in the large producing states unless futures prices fall to around 60 cents. Much of the U.S. routinely moves into the CCC loan program even at higher price levels. The adjusted world price, though, based on forward quotes, would be about 11 cents above the base loan rate. So prices are a long way away from the point to which CCC begins to absorb the costs and bear the burden 
of carrying the loan stocks. If the trade is to carry the stocks, then board spreads must widen to reflect the cost to carry in order to create the incentive to do so. For August through October, U.S. stocks are going to be very tight. However, that should change later in the season as the harvest peaks and the way the projected 5.3 million bales carryover stocks begins to build. A few points worth noting about the decline in the Chinese stocks and the increase in the rest of the world stocks is that from 2012 to 2015, the world traded two separate balance sheets. They traded the China balance sheet and the rest of the world. The world was largely insulated from the pressure of the large Chinese reserve stocks, but the threat was always there. In the last two years, China has sold 20.7 million bales of reserve stocks, and during that period, they've averaged imports of 4.6 million bales a year. Adding these together, we see that China has needed to use 15 million bales a year to supplement its domestic production to meet the needs of its textile industry. China will have to satisfy its structural cotton deficit with larger imports once the reserve stocks are worked down to manageable levels. When this time occurs, the world will resume trading one balance sheet and China's imports will have a major impact again. Just here in the last few days, it seems as if China has just made a decision to extend its selling program of its reserve bales for an additional month in September. This is important to the world and the world pricing because it will free up about 1.7 million additional bales into the Chinese marketplace that otherwise would have been held off the market. This brings us to the question of, well, just how large is the U.S. crop for 2017-18? In the first week of April, most of the southeast, and I know we're going to be covering some of the grounds that are experts, and I use that word loosely. <laughs> uh, Wake this up. Yeah. In the first week of April, most, most of the southeast was in what we would call an abnormally dry category, according to the drought monitor. Very beneficial rains in May and June gradually moved into the southeast, and the drought conditions turned into a favorable moisture. The southeast as a whole, even though with a dry start, with timely rains, the crop ended up being planted on time, and the current conditions are very high. As a matter of fact, they're higher than every other state that they've had in recent years except for Alabama. I would not be surprised to see several of the states in the southeast challenge their record yields. In the Mid-South, late April rains eliminated the dryness there as well. And although the crop was planted late, later than normal, and began squaring behind schedule, high temperatures in June and July have caused it to catch up as well. The percentage of crop rated to good to excellent varies from 45 to 95% in the individual states. And here, too, the crop is generally in very good condition. Texas, as we heard, had very good subsoil moisture to start the year. Topsoil moisture was rated 68% adequate to surplus at the beginning of April. By the time we hit the second week of June, those numbers had dropped considerably to only 35% adequate to surplus. What looked like a great start for the high rolling for the high plains and the rolling plains gradually eroded into a very hot, dry, and windy scenario, especially so in the area west and south of Lubbock. While South Texas was receiving very beneficial rains, the west side of District 1S was struggling to get planted before the final crop insurance planting dates with topsoil moisture and a, with low topsoil moisture and abnormally high temperatures. When rains finally did come, so did the hail and storms and wind, which destroyed fields that had already been up to a stand. Offsetting some of these losses on the high plains is going to be what looks to be an excellent South Texas crop, which I believe will beat all current estimates that people are expecting. Like many other seasons, Texas is the largest unknown, and getting a true picture of the Texas abandonment is going to be more difficult than ever. For now, we are estimating that the abandonment in the state to be between 15 and 20 percent. If Texas doesn't receive rains later in the season, or if we have an early frost or freeze event, our abandonment and production numbers for Texas will prove to be too optimistic. In the far west, as we touched on before, planning progress was near to slightly behind normal for Arizona. However, high temperatures have allowed that crop to catch up in pace, and it also looks excellent for right now. California entered the season with the best irrigation water allocations in years due to record snowpack levels and above normal rain. <clears throat> Wet, cool conditions delayed the planning, and in fact, California's planning didn't reach the 90% mark to over three weeks later than the five-year average. 
although still behind normal in squaring and bowl setting, above normal temperatures there in the past month have also helped that crop narrow its gap. Currently, our U.S. production estimate is around 19.1 million bales. Our upland production is estimated at 4.8 in the southeast, almost 4 million bales in the Mid-South, and 8.6 million in the Southwest, and 923 bales, to be exact, in the Far West. Our planting estimate is 12.1 million, slightly over, to, uh, excuse me, our planted area of 12.1 uh, million acres is slightly above USDA's planted acreage estimate of 12.05. The difference here being in the southeast region. Weather in the next 60 days is going to be critical for the U.S. crop to reach its potential. In closing, what I'd like to say is that as I look forward in time, in the short term, the market's going to have to deal with this increase in supplies outside of China for this coming year. I expect export competition to start to pick up in roughly 60 to 90 days. And this should keep a lid on prices, barring a weather problem going forward. But with the prospects of China returning as a large importer in the next one to two years, I believe you will continue to see support for deferred futures values. Thanks, Pat. All right. We have a number of questions that have come in. We will, uh, we will ask these questions of the panel. We'll start off with one. A farmer from uh, La Mesa, Texas, uh, says this, I've been expecting a bounce back to the 70 to 72 area. Will it come and when? <laughs> uh, and then the follow-up question is, questions about hedging the crop. Anyone have any thoughts on how far? And, and let me mention this. As I look at the, the live quote for December cotton, we're down 105 at 67.93. So anyone have any thoughts on can we bounce and how much? Away? Well, everybody's jumping right on that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Joe, this is the first time they ever seated us together, so maybe they're expecting something here that way they don't usually get, but uh, you're bigger than I am. Uh, uh, the, to, Pat, uh, expectations are wonderful, not to be naive. 72 cents is something I expect. Uh, when will we see it? If we will see it, we're not sure. Again, the, 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 so much of this conversation is has been based on what's the weather going to do in the next 30 days, what's it going to do in the next 60 days. And that's going to be the predominant factor. This is a, this is a, a market that today and will be controlled, in my opinion, for the, certainly the next 30 and probably the next 60 days by Mother Nature. So our, our exports, our demand is outstanding. Uh, what is this? This is the, the third largest demand to date of, of, on a year-to-year -year basis. Uh, in about 30 years. So we're selling cotton, and Joe went over that. Uh, so it's really more of a supply situation that's going to control New York, in my opinion, uh, the ice futures. And I would, depending on what weather scenario you take, yes, 72 cents is there. I would say uh, also our 65, 64 cents is there if we get outstanding weather at lots of places. I would have, however, come back and say sometime in August, probably I would go out, as, certainly as far as mid-August, to think that we will see uh, another high in this market. Not a new high, but it, we'll, we'll get back to 70 cents, 70 cents plus. I, I think, Pat, when we look at it, when 70 to 72, we were, we were at 69 last night, so we were almost there. So I, I think it's pretty easy to say, yes, you absolutely have a chance to, to, get, to get to that is. And I would say... Um, you know, La Mesa is, is real close to one of the most important production areas in the world. Right. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, your three main centers, which is going to be your Xinjiang area. You've got your, uh, your central uh, and western um, areas in India. And then you've got West Texas. Uh, we know in the United States, to me, today, the United States is looking at an amazing crop everywhere except for West Texas. Um, so if you want to know if you got a shot for 70 or 72, in La Mesa, just keep looking outside your door, because if it if it rains there, that's probably going to be the end of the of the chance for it, unless something really bad happens in India. But the world's you know the world's going to be tight for the next 60 days. Um, so if we don't get any rain for the next couple of weeks in um, in Texas, that'll keep people on edge, and people on edge prices can go anywhere in the short term. What I, what I would say is that in general, with the increase in supplies around the world. Um, I don't expect a, a super spike uh, in this next year. 
uh, until China comes back to the market, um, which is anybody's guess of whether that's going to be one year or two years out. Uh, that's there. Eventually, I think we'll normalize prices in the 70 to 78 cent range because that's roughly where the world grows enough cotton to uh, to satisfy um, the ability for China to have 15 million bales imports. Uh, we don't have to be there maybe for 18 months or two years to get there, um, which is why, again, I think that the job of the marketplace is that if we start to produce too much too early, we have to put carry in the market in order to get there because eventually China will buy it, but it might not be for a while. Okay. I think based on those two gentlemen's comments, uh, the question about hedging, if this market does go up to 70, 71, 72 cents, I think uh, – Farmers should be very quick to pull the trigger on that because longer term, as Joe just mentioned, we're in a situation without a severe crop problem someplace. We're going to have an adequate to a little bit surplus supply in the time period you talked about. So if you if you have that rally, you're probably going to get it now. Take advantage of it. It's probably not going to last long. Well, Kel, that's if, a great point. If I can just add to that, if, if, please. Uh, uh, I, 70 cents, you said 70, 72, and, I, and I've heard you say that before, and I agree with you totally. I'm going to get a kind of pretty active right, right at 70 or 70, 05, 70, 10, 70, 15. Uh, yes, I would think 72, but I've got to get a little active again now, back, back, back to 70. Joe's comment, uh, very astute, uh, talked about the West Texas being one of the centers, and the gentleman calling in from La Mesa right there in Dawson County, Texas. That's the center. So much cotton is right there in that area. You go back to the 1970s, that entire decade, you would see a year with outstanding record yields in that area, and you'd see a year or two years later where most gins didn't even operate and was strictly due to weather. Okay. Well, we've talked about how high it might go. Let's talk about how low it might go. Uh, with good weather, how low can we go? Well, uh, one thing I've learned is that how high and how low you, you think they can go, they can go a lot lower and they can go a lot higher. <laughs> uh, I mean, we can just look at the range that we had in uh, July futures, right, in a matter of uh, two weeks uh, that its expanse was there. You know, people forget, and I hope I got my numbers right, but I think it was only 15 months ago when we were like 54 cents and then we traded 80-something cents. So. If, uh, if the spec community decides that uh, they want to push prices down, just as if they decide if, uh, if they're enthusiastic about prices, all you have to do is take a look at the sugar chart or take a look at the coffee chart, <laughs> that when the sediment changes, it can move prices much beyond where people believe fair value is. Now, I think the question of what's fair value to the low side versus how low can we go are two very different, uh, two very different answers. To me, I think that once you get down to the valuation where we talked about carrying of the stocks, which is either towards the U.S. loan, towards the MSP, from a fair value standpoint, that defines roughly the bottom. Uh, that's probably in that 60 to 62.50 range uh, to the downside of where that would define it. That doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that the order flow for a short term can push things down uh, that far, but I'm pretty comfortable that I don't think we're going much below. I'm not saying we're going there, but I, I would define that as the bottom. As everybody knows, I've been a little more bearish than what he just expressed. I think the oversupply or potential oversupply with good weather. Now, all this has to fall in place before we see prices. Uh, and I'm kind of looking at your comment about uh, how markets react. I think the specs will probably come after this market at some point if the weather continues to be good. And I would see the lows to be somewhere in the mid-50s. Very likely go through your 60-cent mark simply because I think the specs at that point are going to say, they're going to smell blood and push prices. So my, my thoughts are a little bit lower than yours are today, Joe. I hate to do that. It's okay. <laughs> Away? How low can it go? Oh, I like the low 60s, uh, just right in that area. Gerald? I'm thinking 63 to 64 cents. John? Well, I I'm, I'm agree with Kip that if a number of things line up, I could see futures markets in the mid-50s. Okay, well, where are the speculators now? You had mentioned the speculators. I mean, what, what do we think? Well, the specs now are, they've moved back to a, quote, normal, just a little bit less than their average for the uh, five years right now. And they have, right now, I think they're looking at a weather market. They're more inclined to, if you get bad weather, they'll get long. Uh, they're, they're very unpredictable right now because we are in a weather market. However, longer term, we've seen the specs tend to want to stay to the long side rather than short. 
it's just been sort of their bias to, to be longer the market rather than short. However, if they decide to go short this market, and Joe mentioned just a moment ago, they'll press this thing a lot harder and a lot faster than people think. And you'll go past fair value quickly. Um, uh, right now, the, the high-frequency traders, the algos, supply-demand makes very little difference to these folks. They'll just start trading it, and I, I think they have the potential this year, as I mentioned earlier, if things fall in place, to start to get to an actual net short position. I would not be surprised about that. Okay. We have a question here uh, that I'll ask our group. How important has sustainability become for clothing brand, brands and retailers? Well, certainly sustainability has become a real key with that, with, with that group. They, they, they preach it, they talk it, and unfortunately, I would be one to say that the cotton industry has been a bit behind the eight ball. We did not see that coming as, a, as an industry. Certain people did. And we sat back and we allowed the synthetic industry to define the meaning of, of sustainability. And now we're having to live with that. It's difficult for me uh, to sit up and think that we have an acid-based petroleum fiber that the, that the retail industry is advertising to consumers is a fiber that's more sustainable than an organic fi fiber such as cotton. But we sat back and we allowed that to happen, so it's something we've got to meet head on and, and meet this sustainability problem because consumers are asking uh, for that. Yeah, I, I think it's a two, uh, there's two approaches at the same time. We have both traceability and sustainability issues going forward. We talked a bit about this last year, and I, and I, I think the momentum is continuing to move forward, um, although I don't think it's, uh, moving at breakneck speed yet. And one of the problems is people are asking for it, but they don't want to pay for it. Um, and so uh, where the industry is moving that way, it does not come free to have the sustainability and the traceability that's there. It is available to people. Um, and I do think the consumer awareness uh, will continue to grow. Um, and I agree with OA and, and to the extent that I think people are just starting to see the beginning of some comparison of different types of uh, uh, work that is being done in comparing the man-made fibers uh, and the sustainability of that versus the cotton side. So I think we're going to get some momentum there. So I, I'm a little bit hopeful. I'm seeing for the first time both in fashion trends uh, as well as from the sustainable side a move shift back towards cotton. Um, so I hope we're nearing the bottom. It's not something that's going to take off on us yet, but I'm hoping that we, we've at least weathered the storm now and we've seen the worst of uh, the competition side from loss of fiber share from uh, polyester. Joe, you mentioned they don't want to pay for sustainability. They're going to pay at some point in time. I've read something today that uh, 18 trillion tons of plastic and, of course, in the plastic, you got to include the, the polyester and that uh, floating around the... Uh, buried in landfills. Um, I, I don't remember the number in terms of how much plastic has just floated to the bottom of the ocean. You've got these giant uh, uh, floating states, if you will, as big as, uh, as big as Texas out in the middle of the ocean. And uh, at some point, you know, this, this younger generation, is, they're going to get tired of this, uh, this environmental, uh, uh, you know, impact of, of the plastics and the polyesters uh, around the world and, and, and do something about it because uh, they're going to have to do something about it. So they're not paying for sustainability today, but eventually it's going to come and, and present a price tag to, to everyone. And, and I, if I can add something, I'm Trudy Bland. I'm, I'm president of, uh, of, of Vice Futures U.S. I can, I can talk in here, right? Sure. <laughs> Please. <Yeah. laughs> Please. So, uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here at the New York Stock Exchange, and one of the, the, the key things that's probably going to drive sustainability um, is, uh, is, is investors. A lot of the, the companies that sell commodities and across the board, um, they, uh, they're, they're, they're increasingly driven by activist investors. And those investors are, are, are really concerned about uh, environment, you know, what it's called ESG, environmental sustainability and governance. And they're do they do that because their in turn investors are, are the pension funds like CalPERS and things like that. So, so uh, it's a minority of, of investors, but the, but they're very very vocal, and that's really driving these companies to do that. Uh, another one that's uh, driving uh, more companies to, to look at sustainability is actually state action. I mean, if you, if you guys saw Vermont 
um, a few, uh, it, was, uh, it was about a year ago, and they decided to put out something on non-GMO uh, uh, standards. And you actually had to swear, like a, a Sarbanes-Oxley thing, to, uh, that you were not going to use ge genetically modified products there. That type of things make, make public companies nervous and, and drive them to, to some type of sustainability standard. That's a great comment, and Patty, if I may, again, somewhat on the flip side of that, but, but your point is totally accurate. Our, I, from my standpoint, I agree with you. In 2015, our government, in, in our infinite wisdom, we banned the microbeads in cosmetics, the tiny little thing, little, little, little chemical elements uh, made of plastic that uh, helped uh, clean and uh, shine a, 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 the face of, or in body of anyone that used cosmetics. Well, we banned those, and then in, you go through the various states, Cornell, you go to Florida, you go to Alabama, and you look at also the various Gulf states, the research that's being done, that they've gone out into the oceans and they've pulled water samples, and what they're finding, they're not finding those microbeads, they're finding the microplastics, the microfibers coming from that uh, polyester shirt that you had in your closet last year coming from that, those uh, yoga pants that, you, that you've been wearing. So that, that message has to come, become clear to the retailers and, 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 and to the textile industry that while they are ex ex concerned about sustainability and transparency, we need to make sure that we look at other things besides cotton. Okay. Here's another question that's come in. Uh, what have we heard concerning this Trump administration's policies toward agriculture, especially cotton? Who would like that? <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll start with a little bit with, and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to tie it to the Trump's administration necessarily, but agricultural and especially for cotton, the, the issues in front of the, uh, the cotton industry are many. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a call in about an hour today with the National Cotton Council to go over um, possible uh, policy initiatives uh, going forward for the next farm bill. And, you know, I, in general, um, cotton is lucky. You know, we have, we have a couple of champions um, in Congress uh, who've done a great uh, job for us. Chairman Conaway is, uh, is a great friend of cotton that's there. He does a great job for in, in the Ag Committee in general um, that's there. And so, uh, I think cotton is fairly well placed, whether it's the Trump administration or the next administration, whoever that may be, or even in past ones. The most important thing for cotton, I think, is to have uh, a united message to where things are. I think that we, as an industry in general, um, have to realize that our, our markets have changed. You know, today we export 70 to 75 to 80 percent of our production. We have to have an industry that is competitive, uh, both from a price standpoint and the ability to move our cotton going forward. So uh, the administration in general, especially when we look at Congress, is very open um, to the initiatives that the, uh, of the, and the challenges in front of the cotton industry. So I'm fairly optimistic going forward um, that the policies that the United States cotton program will be run under um, will, will be conducive to being able to allow us to continue the number one spot in the world as the world's largest exporter. Okay. Any other thoughts? All right. Any, any comments anyone would like to make about any particular thing here before we wrap up? <laughs> Sound like we we're through. I guess we've covered <laughs> it. Pat, just, I guess reflecting just for a moment, it, it seemed like with the uh, I think we all spoke very uh, forcefully uh, or passionately about, uh, you know, cotton versus the man-made fibers and, and uh, uh, the, the movement toward the sustainability and, and traceability. And, and uh, I, I, I firmly believe that over time I would agree with Joe that uh, um, cotton share should begin to climb back and, and reclaim its, its, its rightful place in, in consumers' hearts and, and minds. Okay. Well, let's wrap it up. We want to thank uh, the. Uh, we want to thank ICE for uh, hosting us again this year. Uh, want to thank Tim Berry and recognize uh, Tribune Bland for being with us on our panel today. Uh, thanks to the New York Stock Exchange for hosting us here today. We appreciate that. 
Want to uh, recognize our sponsor, Bayer Crop Science, for supporting us as they do. We thank Brent Crossland for that. Uh, we uh, want to thank all our speakers for joining us this year and contributing here today. And uh, we'll let you know that you can see this program delayed also. We'll have it up uh, a little later today uh, at the agmarketnetwork.net. And I think also uh, New York Stock Exchange might have it up also on their site. So uh, we hope you enjoy it. Enjoyed it today. We thank you for being with us here for a New York Cotton Market Roundtable. Thank you. Thank you, Pat.